0: One of the last important pieces of advice given by the Buddha towards the end of his life was this. You are the light. You are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but yourself. You are the light. You are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but yourself. These words are often a reminder to me that Whatever it takes to open the heart, to let go of greed, hatred, and delusion, to realize that liberating wisdom that brings one to some kind of freedom is part of my own mind and heart already. A few years ago, when I was practicing in Burma, and expressing a renewed interest to our teacher, Sayada Pandita, a kind of a sense of ardency that I remember having when I was younger, in my mid-twenties, when I felt like my hair was on fire with the Dharma. And a few years ago, I began to feel this all over again, not in, in quite the same excited way, but um, actually in a more balanced way, I was beginning to feel that. And there was this willingness to go through whatever needed to, bu- go, to be gone through at this point in my practice. Um, the body's more painful because it's getting older. But I've been noticing during the years of my practice that there's more ability to be with pain There's more ability to open to what's difficult in the body and in the mind. So there was this um, steadfast willingness to go through whatever is next on the path for me, to expose deeper layers of suffering, to understand with uh, deeper insight, perhaps, to let go of more of the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so when I went to Sayadaw Pandita for my first interview, he said, well, what are, why are you here? And I said, because I want to clean my heart more. And he said, in order to do this, you must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice. In order to do this, You must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice. And I thought that was an interesting way for him to put it. You know, it wasn't, he didn't mean investing anything material, of course. He meant investing energy, investing mindfulness, investing equanimity, investing the various factors that we are all here developing As we go through this process, to bring forth those qualities already in the mind stream leads towards the great direct experience of liberating wisdom. Those qualities are the seven factors of enlightenment, and that's what I'd like to speak about this evening the seven factors of enlightenment. And those are the factors that are being developed moment by moment as we are invested in being continuous with the practice, um, motivated by whatever faith we can muster up in the moment, using, making use of whatever balance of mind is there, um, even using suffering as a motivation. So these are all, these factors are all gradually being developed here, supported by the silence, the seclusion, the commitment to explore. So uh, these are mindfulness, investigation, effort, I'll, I'll be repeating them throughout, effort, joyful interest, calm, concentration, and equanimity. This kind of relaxed attention that we're bringing to whatever the experience is in the body-mind, whether it's in sitting, walking, lying down, or any of the postures and sub-postures, the results of doing this, keeping the continuity of awareness, this open, kind of relaxed awareness, results in these uh, factors maturing, gaining strength all along. There's really nothing much more that we have to do, except for being present for the experience, staying open, relaxed, and as clear as we can around each arising experience. Whenever it would get difficult for me, um, I'd say to Manindraji, "It's too hard. I can't do it." And I remember one time, you know, he'd say various things to me to help me keep going. But I remember one time when I was practicing in Maui, we were in um, this place where we'd practiced a lot called Akahi Farm, where a lot of retreats took place with Joseph and Jack and Manindra and Aya Kema and many great teachers. And uh, it's surrounded by a lot of bamboo, and it's kind of jungly around there. So this one time I went to him and I said I just can't do it Muniji I can't I just can't do it it's too hard and he said I'm only asking you to be mindful I'm not asking you to go cut the jungle and <laughs> but I would rather have done that you know it's it's really sounds so simple but to Be aware of the present moment's experience is something that we need to bring constant energy up for, moment by moment, as you know. The Buddha said, if the four foundations of mindfulness are practiced persistently and repeatedly, that means uh, the continuity, the seven factors of enlightenment will be automatically and fully developed. So... Whatever object or experience is arising, whether it's in the body, in the mind, bringing that relaxed, clear attention or awareness to it, this is all we need to remember to do. This, what the Buddha said, has always been a reassuring promise to me. I've I've really taken during these years, taken the Buddha's word for it. And frankly, I have found that the Buddha's teachings have been proven to be true for myself so far. And I'm just, you know, a little ways along on the path. The Buddha connects this development of the seven factors of liberation to this particular passage in the numerical discourses of the Buddha. Liberation by supreme knowledge, too, O monks, has its nutriment, I declare. It is not without a nutriment. And what is the nutriment of liberation by supreme knowledge? That nutriment is the seven factors of enlightenment. And so these are the factors that directly lead to liberation. Very important teaching so this Dhamma teaching is meant to help you become aware, help you become knowledgeable, and distinguish your experiences so that you're more able to recognize these factors. By recognizing these factors, it strengthens them. They're wholesome factors of mind. Uh, they're, you might say the, the counterpoint of the five hindrances. I've always felt empowered with a very healing sense of confidence and indeed uh, the Buddha often gave the asked his monks to give the chant of the seven factors they called the bojangas to people who were not well who were ill and um, it was said that some people many people became healed just by hearing the chant of the seven factors of enlightenment the bojangas because they're all very, very deeply healing qualities of the body-mind continuum. So being aware of their presence in at the time that they arise, in the moment, is uh, very, very strengthening for our practice. So of the seven... There are three energizing factors, and I'll go over each one, but just to put them in groups. The three energizing factors are investigation, effort, and joyful interest. Those are the three. Sometimes that third one is called delight. And they're balanced by the three stabilizing or tranquilizing factors, which are calm, concentration, and equanimity calm, concentration, and equanimity. The one linking factor, which is the first of the seven factors, is mindfulness. It said that mindfulness develops all the others, it links all the others, and it balances all the others in just the right amount so that uh, the tranquilizing and the energizing come into the correct balance so that the mind can open and the clarity, the understanding of wisdom can be revealed from that place. It's said that the ones that we actually work with and develop, that we can actually put our um, energy into are mindfulness, actually energy or effort, the second one, and investigation. And the others come as a result of just doing that. In fact, Manindra used to always say, just be mindful and all the others will come around. He told me that one time I remember I was walking, we went to the beach where we live and I brought the children with me and we were just sitting there and as usual he was giving me a dharma talk on something, you know, and it might take a whole day. So this part of the day was about the seven factors. And he was saying, we had just come from a walk, and he said, You know, um, in these seven factors, the mindfulness is like the mother. And all the children come around. And so the children come nearby, and then he would name the others. So just being mindful, and all the others will come by. It is said that when mindfulness is uh, present, it attracts the others. Um, The energizing, tranquilizing qualities are all uh, drawn because like attracts like. Wholesome qualities of mind draw to it other wholesome qualities of mind. And when this happens, mindfulness becomes stronger and stronger more and more developed. So the linking factor, the first one, is mindfulness. Developing all the others, balancing all the others. It's not an easy quality to talk about because usually this mindfulness or awareness is taking an experience as its object, so to speak. and. Uh, We're usually discussing the object of attention and not mindfulness itself. Mindfulness sometimes is called non-negligence, not being negligent, being ready to experience the present moment. It's remembering, not remembering the past, not remembering or thinking about the future, but remembering to be in the present moment, to open to, to receive the experience of the present moment. There's a word that's used, apamada, and that means uh, a non-negligent person. In the collection of sayings of the Buddha, there's one that always strikes me. The foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. We see that when someone has a quality of this carefulness about them, this careful awareness about them. Not being aware of some focused, precise thing all the time, but keeping the mind open and aware of much more than that that kind of awareness, that kind of um, jewel quality, that kind of shining quality stands out much more than anyone's physical appearance than what anyone owns in their life or whatever role they have in their life, whatever status they have in society. The beauty of their awareness shines forth. You get a sense that That quality and that person can participate in life's events without really getting lost in them, without being, can participate in what's difficult and not drowned in it, can enjoy what's beautiful, what's pleasant, and not get attached to it. So there's not a distance, there's not a feeling of being distant from whatever is being experienced. There's a feeling of intimacy, but not being absorbed in. There's a feeling of some kind of space so that it can be enjoyed without getting stuck onto. So we don't feel so removed or distant, nor do we feel absorbed in it when this kind of awareness is taking place. Sometimes it's um referred to as this participatory awareness not a kind of a dull awareness but really participating in touching life moment to moment touching experience without getting identified with it it's a very alive feeling it's a it's a feeling of being totally truthful with what's going on not being in ignorance, not ignoring what's happening. Down to earth, yet not, you know, with the head in the sand kind of thing. I remember the first time I, I felt um, that kind of person's energy and saw and felt the strength of that person's uh, uh, beingness was when I was attending a, some kind of a conference with the Dalai Lama. There were thousands of people there. I think it was '89 that was when he got the Nobel Peace Prize, and it was right during that conference that it was announced. It was a huge um, coliseum or auditorium that we were in. I think there were about 5,000 people. And he was giving some teachings on a Rigpa, so I was participating in this along with some other Dharma friends and following the instructions that were given of how to pay attention to this particular um, Tibetan uh, teaching and kind of concentrating on the various things and very, very sacred teaching that he was offering with all these people. So he was doing his chanting, uh, had given us some instructions and then was doing his chanting with that deep, melodious voice and those beautiful Tibetan. I'm sorry to, I don't mean to. <laughs> but it's so, um, it, it sounds like it's pulling you deeper and deeper into your heart, into your body, your mind, and I really appreciate it. And all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky in the middle of chanting. He says, bathroom? Anybody go bathroom? And, and maybe he had to go himself. But he just kind of realized that, you know, not just with what he was doing, but his, his awareness was open and realized people might need a break. And he was so genuine in In being there with everyone, that I I think that was the part I remember most about that whole time. (laughs) Um, His quality of being so genuine has just stayed with me over all the years, and exemplified the kind of person that um, I could aspire to be in some lifetime. Sometimes in, in ancient texts, there's some beautiful poem-like uh, words about mindfulness, poetic words about mindfulness. And this one comes from Chuang Tzu, the 4th century Taoist, who says, The perfect man, or woman, uses the mind as mirror. It clings to nothing. It refuses nothing. It receives, but does not keep. So how can that be in our practice? When the mirror of mindfulness, sometimes uh, in Theravadan texts, they talk about the mirror of mindfulness, like awareness, comes and simply reflects that moment's changing experience. Just simply reflects it without making anything of it, without trying to do anything with it, without needing to transform it, but simply reflects what's happening. There's a lot of knowledge that arises from this because we're not overlaying old knowledge. We're receiving, there's a possibility, the potential to receive new knowledge when this kind of mirror of awareness, mirror of mindfulness goes uh, In front of the present moment's changing experience. A lot of times, what we do is we overlay old knowledge or secondhand knowledge, maybe it's not even ours, but secondhand knowledge onto the experience. And this is where we can get trapped, we can get lost, we can get stalled in a parking lot of spiritual understanding for a long, long time. So what awareness is asking of us, what mindfulness is asking of us, is to simply mirror what is happening without overlaying anything, without refusing, without uh, pushing away, simply mirroring what's happening. Still, I hear Manindra's voice and instructions about being mindful of every moment starting when you need to with your breath without commenting, without judging, without criticizing. And then there's the ability to understand more deeply what the present moment is trying to reveal. So this kind of mindfulness, bare attention, open attention is extraordinary. It's not the kind of awareness that we take in everyday life where it gets us through the day. There is a potential for deepening wisdom to arise with this mindfulness in connection with this kind of extraordinary mindfulness. It pulls towards it the wisdom of seeing more deeply what that moment is revealing. There's a Japanese haiku. Gazing at the moon, I knew myself completely, no part left out. And so we have this sense, this, this sense of the totality of what this mind body continuum it consists of is seen precisely clearly nothing left out no preferences just mirroring what's happening so this is the first factor which is mindfulness the second factor which is the first one of the energizing qualities, is activated by mindfulness. So nothing to do but just be mindful in a continuous way. And the second factor of investigation comes alive. It's investigation of the present moment, not investigating the past, not the future, not what we think about planning in the future, But it is the opening to this very present moment. The mirroring of mindfulness to the present moment allows that to happen in a very natural way. This kind of investigation is making space. It's a receptive kind of attitude. It's not a doing kind of investigation there is an open kind of awareness here and there is an openness for what has not yet been been experienced so it's not trying to look for anything not trying to place anything that's being experienced into old niches but just noticing what can be noticed and maybe some is okay you know we understand that and see that and then new information arises, and it's not necessarily conceptual information with a lot of words to it. It might feel more like an aha rather than some intellectual or psychological wording that's put to it. It kind of feels like this. Say we go into a room where there's a gathering going on a party, and a lot of people are speaking, and there's delicious food, and there's interesting decorations in the room, and we go first, we, we take ourselves over first to the people that we know, and we greet them, and we, we put our attention right there on those people, we focus on them, we talk to them, and then after that, we are attracted to the food, so we go over and we see the food, and our attention goes right there, and we notice that part and take part in it, all of our senses delight in that. And it's very, very, um, that, of course, very, very interesting. And there's, there's just a lot of attention on more what is gross in the experience. The people, the food, the decorations— and then we're, we're finished doing all of our, you know, social responsibility of greeting people, partaking of some of the food, and then maybe, okay, now it's just time to sit quietly and have some, something soothing to drink. And all of a sudden, we realize in the background that some quiet music is playing And we don't have to do anything with that. We don't have to go there to get it. We don't have to talk about it. We don't have to exchange anything. There's no effort made to do anything. It's just sitting by the side and quietly receiving the changing Notes that are coming in what is called music. And it's a very receptive attitude towards what is in what's not so obvious to us. So this awareness recognizes that that music is being heard. And so the mind quiets down around that it's not choosing an object but receiving what's already there so that's a big difference in the energetic quality of investigation it's not going out to choose something it's just realizing that there's always been something there and being quiet And there's some clarity, stillness of mind, so that experience can be clearly experienced. It's not a focused attention, it's merely a receptive attention. That's a kind of investigation that is happening here, receiving. The objects of experience changing very intimately, but quite fully, so this is investigation, the first of the energizing qualities, but it 's very uh, subtle kind of energy the second. Energizing quality is energy itself, or this kind of effort. And as we keep saying, it's not the effort to change anything, not to get rid of anything, not to gain anything, not to get anything, only to be with the present moment. Joseph um, says something all the time, which I try to remember short moments many times short moments, many times. So this means a continuity of effort, persistence of effort. It's not a big one. It's just the effort if you just continue as you are, but for a moment, let your attention feel your hands wherever they are. It just takes that little effort, but moment to moment. Where we're just resting in the moment, receiving the moment. So this is from Mahasi Sayadaw's um, translation of uh, how to practice Vipassana. Mahasi Sayadaw is the teacher of our more immediate teachers, teacher of Menindraji, teacher of Sayadaw Upandita. And you might call him one of the grandfathers of this lineage. So this is how he talks about energy. If you begin your practice with too much energy, you will become overzealous and restless later, and your practice will not improve as much as possible. On the other hand, if you begin your practice with too little energy, your effort will not be strong enough for your practice to improve, and you will become lethargic. So you should exert moderate effort in practice, reducing effort when it's too strenuous and boosting energy when it's too weak. Then you won't be restless because your effort is excessive or lethargic because your energy is deficient. So this is a kind of moderate energy that we should consider using in this factor of enlightenment. Always middle path. Moderate energy. So, in our um, in our culture, most of the time, our effort or energy has to be in settling back more, because we we live in such a striving culture, a competitive culture, that we need to remember to settle back more in our practice. You've been reading this every evening for those of you who come for the last uh, sitting from Sri Ramana Maharshi. No one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. And that's the kind of effort we're talking about. So the third energizing quality, the last of them, is joyful interest. Sometimes we hear it described as zest, sometimes delight. This is a feeling that emerges naturally out of that gentle persevering effort. Uh, When a certain momentum is being reached, this kind of joyful interest comes. It's a natural interest. It's not a forced interest in the practice. Um. The subjective experience of this, uh, I found this in the text once, and it really does feel like this. It's as if you've been walking in the desert and your, your throat is parched with thirst, and from, uh, from where you are and looking afar, you see an oasis, and you know that there's water there. And all of a sudden, the energy rises up, And when you thought you were tired or um, your mindfulness was weak, all of a sudden there's more energy to go forward. And it comes naturally out of that persevering moment-to-moment continuity of practice. Um, This is a time when sometimes we might begin to say that mindfulness becomes very spontaneous almost effortless at times. You can feel the effortlessness of it coming up. So that's the subjective experience of it. But it's characterized as delight, momentary uh, delight. It's a very open quality of mind. Sometimes there's a sense of agility and lightness in the mind. It doesn't hold on to any experience that's going on. It can begin to move more agilely between one experience and another in changing experiences. There's a willingness to receive any experience. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, there's a very natural willingness because there's some interest in what's going on. It seems very workable now. All of a sudden, you know, the thoughts of going home aren't there during this time and we we really want to be in the next sitting, to go to the next walking or whatever, wherever we can keep continuous. During this time, we may notice that the gross sensations that come up in the body and the coarse sensations all of a sudden turn smooth. It, they become soft, and we might sometimes feel momentary floating, uh, rocking, swaying. Very pleasant experience begins to just begins to arise here. Sometimes. They call this um, experience rapture. Goosebumps and chills come all of a sudden, out of nowhere. Sometimes it feels a very like a very intense bolt of lightning goes through the body, mind, and we wonder where it came from. Sometimes in sitting, it feels like just for a moment swept off the ground or a wave came and lifted the body up and just... It's very uplifting when this happens, of course, because the energy is starting to rise. So this factor matures uh, more and more, and when this factor matures, ecstasy can be experienced, rapture can be experienced, And uh, oftentimes our teachers warn us here, these are one of the goodies of the practice, the spiritual goodies, and warn us here to be careful not to get attached to anything. So the three energizing, investigation, effort or energy, and joyful interest. And the three stabilizing, our first, the first one is calm or tranquility. And as you remember the uh last one of the rapture or joyful interest is when the subjective feeling is when you're in uh on walking in a desert and you see an oasis from afar and your energy rises up and you you just have a lot of energy to get there but this calm and tranquility is a feeling of actually getting to the water in that oasis and drinking the water. And then, you know how it feels when you're thirsty and you drink the water, and all of a sudden the mind, the body, feel very, very settled. And there's a shift in the energy. It's not um, that kind of subtle stimulation, but it's more of a deep, deep calm So, this calm and tranquility has a feeling of deep satisfaction. It um, develops more as this rapture or this joyful interest, delight, smooths out. You may notice that physical restlessness is more absent from the experience. Uh, There's no mental agitation. If there is, it it comes by very quickly and goes away very quickly. There's a calmness but not a dullness to the mind. Now, we may not have these experiences like one after another, but during the day we may get periods of time when we feel joyful interest, periods of time when there's calm, periods of time when there's this... Uh, very continuous kind of mindfulness where there is this investigation that's naturally taking place. This kind of calm and tranquility is cannot uh, be excitable. Nothing can excite it very much. When this is happening, for example, we might move through the dining room and a lot could be going on, but it's it's okay. We feel a deep stability in the mind, in the body, even as we're walking. It doesn't mean we have to be completely still with this. During these times, I've begun to notice that this urge to control anything is futile. It's just receiving everything as it is, but with a a calmness and collectedness. That's beginning to to happen. This is when a lot of um, understanding can come, when teachings come from places we don't uh, expect. Kabir says when eyes and ears are open, even leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. So when, this, when the mind is very, very still, becomes very, very still, mindfulness begins to get stronger also because it's like a still pool that has no currents running so deep in it. It's not ruffled so much on the top of the water. So it reflects everything around it in perfect precision. And so there's that ability to see that very clear reflection. So that's the first uh, stabilizing quality, calm or tranquility. And the second is this undistracted attention that we call concentration, this stabilization of the energy where the... um, Undistracted attention allows all of the energy to be collected and put on whatever changing experience is now in front of it. There's a steadiness when this is happening. It really feels like the energy is being gathered because it has been collected and the stream of energy is going towards that present moment changing experience. The function of concentration is to collect the energy of the mind. During this time, it feels like the thoughts are very far away. There may be thoughts, but they're not sticky. They're not getting pulled into the foreground. The hindrances are very far away. They may seem present at times, sort of present, but so in the background that it's not a bother at all. They're uh, slippery. They slide easily. So, in, in our practice of vipassana, the, this powerful concentration is on changing objects. And it's the continuity on changing objects that deepens this kind of concentration, that strengthens this kind of concentration. When there's too much of this concentration and not enough energy, not balanced by energy, we can get into a trance. And that can feel like we're very clear, very clear. There's a lot of... There seems to be just enough energy, moderate energy. Um, The experiences... um, There's interest in the experience. And all of a sudden the mind just goes blank, or you feel your head just drop, or you wonder after waking up after a second or two, what happened. And this is called sinking mind. Sinking mind is not sleepiness, but it's an imbalance of concentration and energy. When there's so much concentration, and we kind of get absorbed in the object, and there's not enough energy to notice the changing nature of that object. So that's the second one, the uh, concentration, the second of the stabilizing qualities, and the last one is equanimity, which Annie gave a talk on earlier. So I'll just review some of the highlights of equanimity. This kind of equanimity that's developed on changing objects uh, is, has a little bit different quality than the equanimity that's developed during the Brahma Vihara practice that we have been doing in the afternoon. Still, it has the, um, the definition of stilling the mind before it falls into extremes because of the absence of reactivity. That means, in our practice of vipassana, that when a pleasant experience arises, the reactivity of attachment does not come with it. It's simply pleasant. It's not followed on the heels of pleasant. It's not followed by attachment. And when an unpleasant experience arises, it's not followed by aversion. The reactivity of aversion doesn't happen. So the mind is not reacting. It's very, very, very deeply balanced with all the other factors uh, kind of being supporting that equanimity. The inner and outer conditions are accepted with great balance no matter what's going on. It could be very, very deep equanimity with a lot of concentration happening, moment-to-moment concentration. Then all of a sudden something will happen outwardly and maybe cause some kind of pleasant or unpleasant um, experience inwardly. And it's just seen just like that with, oh, this is pleasant. Are unpleasant, and no attachment, no aversion arises. It's said that when when one experiences this over um, longer periods of times, one gets to experience how an arahant's mind might be, a fully enlightened being's mind mind might be all the time. Sometimes in the texts they give metaphors for example like equanimity is like raindrops on a slightly sloping lotus leaf and the lotus leaf on the lotus leaf it just slides off this raindrop so any experience just comes slides through and goes on and that experience is seen very deeply in it in its transitory nature in the same way, um, sometimes a metaphor like a mountain is given, where, as mountains are, great mountains are, there is a steadiness, a ballast to them, uh, unmovability to them, so that when any of the in, uh, vicissitudes in life that Annie spoke about the other evening, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow, When any of those arise in our practice, we feel like we can just be a mountain sitting here. Able to see more deeply into the nature. It's said about equanimity, when there is nothing in the world that can trigger agitation, then one is free from the pain of suffering. So with equanimity, there's this total balance, and yet there's this connection with life. There's this clarity. There's this very, very deep non-reactivity. And the practice is coming closer and closer to the unconditioned, to very um, unsurpassable, that unsurpassable peace. In fact, they call equanimity the doorway to the unconditioned, this kind of equanimity. So these are the seven factors, mindfulness, the linking factor, the energizing factors of investigation, energy, and joyful interest, the tranquilizing factors of calm, concentration, and equanimity. And all of these together bring us to liberating insight more and more deeply as they each are matured in our practice through a a day, through a retreat, through all the years of our practice. They arise naturally simply by being mindful. And when awareness is brought to them, they strengthen. So it's important in our practice to notice and to be aware of these very subtle experiences. We get used to being aware of the hindrances. But a lot of you have been reporting some of these experiences. Just, you know, what do I do when nothing's coming up? You know, well, nothing usually means when the hindrances aren't coming up. But there's, there are other experiences there. They're more porous. They're more refined Like equanimity, that in itself can be experienced. It's very quiet, a sense of calm. Um, Interest has been reported. You know, there's an interest in what's going on. So, can that also be recognized? So, begin to recognize those in your practice. They can come for anyone, you don't have to be that experienced. In fact, beginners often have this beginner's luck, you know, and get a lot of that experience, but just kind of push it aside as nothing. But they're very, very powerful, especially when, we, when mindfulness can notice them. So again, to come back full circle and to remember, as the Buddha said You are the light. You are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but yourself. So let's sit for a moment.